For our Bible reading this morning, I'd like to introduce Dave Bullen. Dave? Let's turn to our Bibles today for today's scripture reading. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower to the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and it is a place known, knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all his places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us, your revelation to us, what you want us to know, that your love is steadfast. No matter, once you have elected us, Your love will never fail. May we put our faith and trust in you in these times. And may we be a light to the world to show that the things of this world are passing by. And the things that are unseen, the eternal, are what is important. And we must put our faith and trust in you. And everyone that does will get their reward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to remind those who received the email that there are several links to some songs, some praise songs on YouTube. And I uh, trust that that was encouraging to you. If you listen to those in the privacy of your home, you can worship the Lord uh, together as a family. And also uh, I included some of the Sunday school materials for the children and parents were looking to you to uh, go over those lessons with the kids so that we don't fall behind in our uh, Sunday lessons in Sunday school. And don't forget, until further notice, we will not be holding, um, at least physically in person, uh, Bible studies throughout the week or prayer meetings uh, due to the uh, shelter-in-place order. 
but uh, don't be shy in reaching out. And if you want to talk to someone or um, have prayer requests, please uh, give us a call, shoot us an email. We'll be happy to, if you have any needs, um, errands to run and things like that, and maybe you're older, you don't want to go out, um, let us know and we can take care of that for you. Also, some of you have asked about our offerings each week. You can give your offering through the church app. That's available for online giving. If you don't uh, want to do that, you can always just mail your check in, and we would ask that you just put attention treasurer and then the church address, uh, 2225 Euclid Avenue, Redwood City, 94061, Grace Bible Church. Uh, Just make sure you put attention uh, treasurer on the envelope. So now let's uh, move on to the uh, message that I've uh, put together for us today. Well, greetings. Glad you could join us for our Sunday morning message via digital media. I'm recording this in an empty auditorium with no people here. We're not meeting physically and publicly this morning due to the shelter-in-place order here in California. These are interesting times that we're now living in as we watch across America and the world, everything rapidly changing before our very eyes. I don't know about you, but I'm not a person who enjoys change in general. It causes me to be disrupted in my daily routine of ministry and life. It can become a source of tension, worry, even anxiety for some people. Worry has been described as this, a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Worry and anxiety especially can easily become that kind of deep channel, especially when we're faced with major changes in the way we live, in the way we carry out our daily lives. Last week on Sunday, I shared with you a message from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. The message was entitled, Living Our Faith in the Face of Fear. We saw seven general biblical principles about trusting our sovereign Lord through the storms of life. Well, today I would like to confront head-on the anxiety, the worry that many of us may be experiencing during this national and world crisis. To do that, I want to look into God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, holy word. And so if you could, in your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. This morning's message is entitled, Dealing with Anxiety Biblically. Dealing with Anxiety Biblically. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. You can follow along as I read this for us. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. 
Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as a small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As we read that text, it's amazing how ironic that truth resonates in our perhaps the most affluent, indulged, and comfortable society there ever was. But it's also one of the most stressed out, one of the most worried one of the most anxious-ridden societies as well. It seems today that no worry goes unnamed, undefined, uncatalogued, undiagnosed, or unmedicated. But worries merely go unrelieved. It is frightening to believe one is trapped in this universe to be nothing more than the chance product of blind, unguided, random, purposeless process of evolution. The thought there is that there's no one home in the universe results in a sense of cosmic alienation, loneliness, angst. The anxiety that results takes many forms, to which humanistic psychology today gives labels to. Labels such as obsessive-compulsive disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress syndrome, social anxiety disorder, general anxiety disorder. And you throw in all the phobias that people have, such as fear of heights and enclosed places and fear of spiders and snakes and mice. Anxiety literally affects millions of people. And treating it is big business. The best the world can hope for in superficially dealing with anxiety is to manage it and mask its impact. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, offers a radically different solution to anxiety. He simply promises to eliminate it. 
In this passage that we just read, Jesus forbids worrying or anxiety concerning either the material world or the spiritual. Let's look at a little background here. Jesus wants his followers to be free from worry. He wants them to be free from anxiety. That's very clear. He says so much in verse 22. He says, therefore, to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, he's just been speaking to the crowd about the dangers of greed, about the dangers of living for this world without any view toward eternity. As a matter of fact, the preceding parable about the folly of the rich fool's greed is intimately connected with this text. And it deals with worry. See, greed says that it can never get enough. Worry or anxiety is afraid it may not have enough. Worry is, or, or, an anxi- or anxiety, is the emotional reward of material preoccupation. See, he speaks to his disciples here who were perhaps feeling a little anxious about whether they would have enough to live on. They just walked away from everything they owned to follow Jesus. Jesus understood that worry about the things of life could undo a, a, spiritual's, a, a, a disciple's spiritual ministry undo even his life. He shows them that anxiety is opposed to biblical truth. That as followers of Christ, we are called to trust in God, who lovingly cares for his own. He prohibits worry about the physical needs of life in verse 22, when he told his disciples, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. But then in verse 32, He declared that those who believe in his name have nothing to fear in the spiritual realm. So he addresses the physical realm in verse 22, and then in verse 32, he addresses the spiritual realm. That's where he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Lord also, by the way, spoke about worry and anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount in several places. So this was a frequent theme in his teaching. Worry basically comes from two things. It stems from two things. It stems from ignorance on the one hand, but also unbelief. Many Christians needlessly worry because they don't understand the depths of the revelation of God's word when it talks about God's gracious love and care for them. But there's also people who are Christians who understand God's nature. They understand God's promises. Yet, they fall into worry and anxiety anyway. See, to be needlessly ignorant, that's one form of sin. But to knowingly distrust God's special revelation to us in Scripture is even greater sin. Now, you have to remember, those who chose to be on the road with Jesus necessarily lived on the edge in respect to their food, their clothing. See, if a disciple worried about breakfast, and then when breakfast was provided, thought, whew, glad that's over with, but where's the lunch going to come from? That disciple would soon become neutralized. They would become spiritually ineffective. See, there's a broad application of this truth 
to all would-be disciples of Jesus in today's culture. Because modern culture is neurotic about food, about drink, about clothing. We see that in the midst of this pandemic that we're experiencing. People storming the storefronts, loading up on toilet paper and milk and bread and emptying the shelves, literally. Modern culture addresses worries we didn't even know we had. Worries that have a tendency to neutralize our discipleship. But Jesus clearly commands us not to worry about life. He says in verse 23, life is more than food, the body more than clothes. So you have to be able to reject the popular view of life, the worldly view of life, that claims we are just bodies. Simple bodies that need to be fed, watered and clothed and serviced. It really puts us on the same level as plants and animals. And it it reduces God to some divine Santa Claus that's just there to meet our needs. Life is more than a good meal or a new outfit. And it's certainly more than worrying about those things. He also shows that to go to the other extreme and pursue riches is at odds with seeking God's kingdom. So, in this text, Jesus is simply teaching us to deal with anxiety biblically. We must trust in the God who cares for us and seek his kingdom above our own needs. Do you remember when that song came out? <clears throat> Don't worry, be happy. I love that song. It was such a positive song. But it had really no basis for such advice other than blind optimism. But see, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we can sing that song with meaning. We know we don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious because we can trust God, our Creator. That's far from blind optimism because it's based solidly on the nature, the character of God and many of His promises to us. And so first of all here, the first point I want to cover with you, and there's four sub-points under this first one. The first one is found in, in Luke 12. And I think we need to look and understand this. To deal with anxiety biblically, we must trust in the God who cares for us. The God who cares for us. The Old King James Version in verse 22 translates anxiety, take no thought. And so a lot of times people would read that verse in the Old King James and they say, oh, that means we don't have to have any uh, mental effort or time or energy in providing for our future needs. They would say you don't have to save, save up for the future. Uh, you don't have to buy insurance. You shouldn't be concerned with any matters of money at all. Just, just trust God and he'll provide. But really that thought in the original language, those words, take no thought, it's the word for anxiety. It's the word for worry. The Lord wasn't encouraging a a lazy, who cares attitude about our lives. In fact, Scripture enjoins us to pay attention to our lives financially and other ways. In Proverbs 27, he mentions that. See, while God provides for the birds... 
He doesn't just, I've never seen a bird just sitting in a nest and God just drops a worm into it as its beak opens. It doesn't happen that way. They have to exert some effort to obtain the worms that God has provided. And the Greek word here basically has the meaning of being divided. It's the same word that's used when Jesus rebukes Martha in Luke chapter 10, verse 41 and 42, where he says, you are worried, you are bothered. That's the word about so many things. But only a few things are necessary, really only one. So here Jesus is speaking against inordinate, consuming, distracting anxiousness and worry. And by the way, it's in the the present imperative form in the original language. It's a verb. And it basically indicates that absence of worry is to continually characterize those who are followers of Christ. That should be a characteristic in a Christian's life, that we are not prone to worry. Well, you might ask why. (laughs) Well, Jesus gives us four reasons here why we should not be anxious. Look at the first one in verses 22 and 23. We should not be anxious because the core of life concerns the soul, not the body. He says life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus is saying that the key thing in life is not things. And Jesus is not just talking about little trinkets, non-essentials, but rather he's really addressing the necessary things of life, food and clothing, we all need those. But even these things are not the key things in life. What is the key thing in life? The key thing in life is being rightly related to your Creator God. See, if your soul is rightly related to God, then He's going to take care of your body, as Jesus goes on to point out. But on the other hand, if you have a well-fed body and a nicely clothed body, but you are alienated from God, you're missing the main thing in life. So in effect, Jesus is saying, if you want to be anxious, be anxious about the most important matter in life. And that's not food and clothing. What is the most important matter in life, you ask? I would say it's your eternal soul. That should be your main concern. If someone says, yeah, but I'm going to starve to death (laughs) if I'm not concerned about eating and concerned about food. Well, Jesus replies this, but where will your soul spend eternity? You might say, but I'll freeze to death because I don't have any clothes. Yes, but after you die, then you'll be too hot (laughs) if you're not rightly related to God. See, don't be anxious because the core of life concerns the soul, not the body. Well, the second point here, Jesus says we should not be anxious because God cares for us more than he cares for the ravens whose needs he meets. Verse 24. So to illustrate his point that God will care for his people, Jesus uses the illustration of birds. He he urged his hearers to consider the ravens. Now, he uses birds quite a bit in his illustrations. He did so in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Chapter 6, verse 26, he chose to use birds as an example of God's care for his, for his creatures. And Christ's hearers, the disciples, were very familiar with birds. In addition to many native birds that they have in Israel, they're also bounded on the east by barren desert and on the west by the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Israel is literally a, a major migration flyway for birds. And hundreds of millions of birds seasonally pass through Israel each year. But it mentions here specifically ravens. Now, these were birds that were despised. They were known as unclean. And they're also incapable of generating their own food supply because they don't sow or reap. Um, this is, by the way, the only New Testament reference to such a bird as ravens. So, unlike humans and some animals, like the ants, they don't store up food for the long term. It says that they don't have a storeroom, they don't have a barn. Well, how do they survive? They survive solely because God has designed and made available the food they require to exist. Some think that Jesus mentions ravens because they were unclean birds. And so that his argument is kind of like this. If God cares for the lowest of these scavengers, won't he meet your needs? When Jesus mentions that the, the ravens neither sow nor reap nor store up their food, he does not apply that to mankind. He doesn't say that we shouldn't labor for our food, it shouldn't, that we shouldn't store up provisions for the future. Because God's word clearly establishes that work, labor, is a means by which we provide for our families and for ourselves. Rather, he's contrasting the lowly raven with the rich fool in the parable just before that I mentioned previously. This man was wrongly focused on storing up plenty for the future. But he stupidly ignored God. When it came to God, he looked the other way. And by way of contrast, the raven gets along just fine without all of the rich fool's anxiety about the future. Why? Because God cares for the ravens. And then Jesus uses almost an understatement to say, how much more valuable are you than the birds? I mean, when you think about it, if God takes care of the birds, he's definitely going to take care of us. Because human beings are, are really the peak, the apex of God's creation. Why? Because we're made in God's image. We're made in God's likeness. I mean, is it not reasonable to assume that if God cares for a lonely scavenger raven, that he will care for his own people? Especially those who are in his own flock? So the next time you see a raven, think about God's care for those birds. I guarantee you'll never see a starving raven. Even in the, the barren desert, somehow they find plenty to eat. God makes provision. So banish your worry, banish your anxiety, as you realize that God cares far more about you than he does about the ravens. You can trust him to provide. Well, thirdly, we should not be anxious because it doesn't do any good. It just doesn't do any good. He says in verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? 
If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? What does Jesus do here? He's pointing out the futility of worry, the futility of anxiety. It never changes anything. It never changes reality. I mean, if you worry, if you have anxiety about something, the outcome is the same. Whether you have anxiety or not. A lot of times, actually, the outcome is worse. Why? Because it takes a toll on your health. Your stomach starts to hurt. You get an ulcer. Pretty soon you're going to the doctor. You have all kinds of things going wrong. You're stressed out, high blood pressure. Jesus says that anxiety and worry won't add any years to your life. You can't add any time to your life by worrying about it. There was a study done, and it was estimated that 40% of our anxiety, of our worries, are about things that never happen. 40%. We're worrying about things that are never going to happen. 30% of our anxiety and our worries concern things that are in our past that can't be relived. They can't be changed anyway. And then 12% of our worries or our anxiety are needless worries about our health. There's just nothing to it. 10% are petty, miscellaneous worries and anxieties, and only 8% deal with legitimate issues. Only 8%. It's not wrong to think about things that we can do something about, something that we can change, but it is futile to consume our thoughts in our time and our energy with matters that we can't change. Someone has observed that we need to distinguish the difference between problems and facts of life. See, problems are matters that we can do something about. We can fix a problem. But the facts of life are just that. They're facts of life. We can't change. And so we have to learn to live with them. But in either case, worry isn't productive. And it runs counter to having our faith placed firmly in God. Well, the last point here under this heading is the fourth thing. We should not be anxious because we should trust in God who cares for us more than he does the flowers of the field. He goes from birds to flowers. Here specifically it says lilies. It's probably just a general reference to all kinds of wildflowers. Consider the the beauty and the the delicacy of a wildflower. I remember when we lived down in the desert, down in Indio, California, the desert area of Southern California out near Palm Springs, in the springtime especially, you'd be out hiking or walking through the desert. And the, Deber, Dev, the desert usually is pretty drab. But once in a while, you would see a flower pop up out of nowhere. And it would just stand out because everything else was so drab. And this beautiful colored flower would just be so vibrant in the midst of the desert. It was spectacular. Well, that's what he says here. Not even Solomon in all of his glory, could match the beauty of a single wild flower. So if God clothes the insignificant grass of the field with these beautiful wild flowers, 
a grass that would soon be bundled up when it was dead and used as fuel in a furnace, then shouldn't we trust him to provide the clothing we need? See, that's what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus rebukes him here. He says, oh, men of little faith. What is that? He hits right to the heart of worry. Our little faith in God. See, it's, it's safe to say that all worry stems from our lack of faith in God. When we worry, we are doubting that God truly cares for us. Keep in mind that Jesus here was addressing the disciples. He was talking about believers. And yet believers who have trusted God with their eternal destiny can easily, easily fall into a state of unbelief when it comes to the immediate problems that they face. Especially when it comes to basic provisions like bread and milk and, yes, even toilet paper. We all need to keep in mind Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, if God did the greatest thing in saving us, he gave his only son to die on a cross and he secured our salvation for all of eternity. Can't we muster up the faith to trust him to take care of comparatively lesser matters on our behalf? See, the worst thing about anxiety and worry is not that it makes us miserable, although it does, The worst thing about anxiety and worry is that it dishonors our loving Heavenly Father. It dishonors Him. I mean, suppose I ran into your kids one day, and I saw on their faces signs of fear, literal terror. And when I asked them, what's wrong? Are you okay? What's wrong? They responded this way, well, we're not sure whether our dad is going to feed us or not tonight. I mean, what would that say about that father's love for his children? I mean, I'd probably turn him in for child abuse. And yet, so many of the Lord's children live as if their father in heaven either isn't concerned or he isn't able to take care of their needs. I'm reminded of an illustration of a little girl on a commercial flight. She was rather young. She was sitting on an aisle seat about halfway, a couple rows back. And uh, when the flight was past the midpoint, it encountered a pretty bad thunder and lightning storm. And because they were just you know, 45 minutes to an hour out from landing at their destination, uh, they had to go through this storm. And one passenger was sitting across and behind the little girl. And she was sitting on the aisle, and he was sitting kind of behind her on the aisle, uh, on the other side of the plane, so he could see her from the side. And she was reading her book, and, 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 and the lightning's going off outside, and the, began, the plane begins to roll back and forth, and they're noticing and experiencing drastic changes in altitude. We've all been there. We've all experienced that. 
more than likely. And most of the passengers during that time were gripping their, their armrests. They were tightening their seat belts. But this little girl, the man noticed, just sat there reading her book, almost unaware of what was going on around her in the plane. And, and this intrigued this passenger so much after the plane eventually experienced a bumpy but safe landing, he couldn't help but scoot up there pretty quick after he got his bag out of the overhead. And he tapped her on the shoulder. And he simply asked the little girl, why were you so calm during that rough flight? This is a very unnerving experience for everyone. And you were just sitting there reading your book. Why were you so calm? And she simply responded this way. She says, oh, my dad's the pilot. And he's just, he's taking me home. Wow. Sometimes we forget in the middle of life's trials, in the middle of life's tribulations, in the middle of a pandemic virus that's taken over the world, We forget that the pilot is our Heavenly Father. And you know what? He's just simply taking his home. So Jesus' first point is that to solve our anxiety biblically, to solve our worried heart biblically, we must trust in the God who cares for us. We brings up a second point in verses 29 to 34 of chapter 12 of Luke. To solve our anxiety, we must seek for God's kingdom above our own needs. We must seek for God's kingdom above our own needs. This section here falls into two parts. First of all, Jesus tells us what we should not seek in verses 29 and 30. Then he tells us what we should seek in verses 31 and 34. So let's let's look at the first point here. We should stop worrying about our basic needs because to worry or be anxious is to mimic the world. And God knows that we need these things. When Jesus says not to seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, as I said before, he doesn't mean that we're not to expend energy and effort and have a means of a life working for a living. But what he's saying really is don't be all consumed with these things. Don't make these things the main aim of your life. He's talking really here about where your primary focus should be. He commands us, do not keep worrying. Now this is a different verse, a different word from verse 22, the word anxiousness before. The word here means to be lifted up. And so some take that to mean, don't be arrogant, don't be haughty, in the sense that, oh, I don't need God, I can do it on my own. But really, in the earliest versions of the New Testament, in the context, argue for the meaning, don't be lifted up or tossed about like a ship on the water. In other words, don't be unsettled, don't be insecure. Stop the anxiousness, stop worrying about these things. Why? Because God will take care of you. Jesus says that when we're consumed with the cares of this world, what are we doing? We're mimicking the world. Because the world lives in a constant frenzy of activity. 
to get more and more. This should not be the believer's focus. I read recently an illustration that really describes the world's ways of seeking after more and more. It was a story of an American businessman who traveled to a small Mexican village, a coastal village. And while he was standing out having his coffee on the pier one day, he looked down in this small boat with just one fisherman in it, was pulling into the dock. And he tied up the boat and he was watching the man unload his fish. And inside the boat were several large yellowfin tuna. If you know anything about yellowfin tuna, they they can be pretty expensive. (laughs) They can be worth quite a bit. Well, the American complimented the, the Mexican fisherman on the quality of his fish. And he asked him simply, how long did it take you to catch those three or four fish? And the Mexican fisherman replied, well, only a little while. And the American then asked, well, why didn't you stay out there longer and catch more fish? <laughs> the Mexican fisherman said that he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. He didn't need any more fish. And the American then asked, well, what do you do with the, the rest of your time? If you're just out there for a short while and you bring back these fish and that's all you're going to do, what do you do with the rest of your time? And the Mexican fisherman said, well, I sleep late and I fish a little and play with my children and take a siesta with my wife, Maria. And then we stroll into the village each evening where I sip some wine and play my guitar with my amigos. I have a full and busy life, senor. Well, the American scoffed. He says, look, (laughs) I am a Harvard graduate. I have an MBA from Harvard. And you know what? I'm here to help. You could spend more time fishing and with the proceeds of your fishing, buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds of that bigger boat, you could buy several boats. And eventually you could have a fleet of fishing boats with a myriad of employees And instead of selling your catch to the middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening up your own cannery. And you would control the product, processing, and distribution. Now, you would have to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to somewhere like Mexico City and then possibly maybe on to Los Angeles and maybe eventually to New York City. And from there, you could run your expanding enterprise. And the Mexican fisherman asked, but, senor, uh, how long will all this take? (laughs) And the American replied, well, you you could maybe do it if you're very aggressive in 10, 15, 20 years. And the fisherman asked, but what then, senor? And the American laughed and said, well, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce a stock offer, and you would sell your company's stock to the public, and you would become very, very rich. You would make millions, possibly billions of dollars. Millions, senor? Then what? The American said, well, he replied to the fisherman. He said, well, then you, then you could retire and you could move to a small coastal village where you could sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take a siesta with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings where you could sip wine and play your guitar with your amigos. See, Jesus tells us 
don't seek for the same things the nations eagerly seek. There should be a distinct difference between us and the world regarding our pursuit of material gain. While hard work is a Christian virtue, make no mistake about it, anxiety about life is not. To get caught up with the world's attitudes is to forget that we have a Heavenly Father who knows that we need all these things. So you ask, that's what we shouldn't seek, but what should we seek? Well, that's the second point here in closing. We should seek God's kingdom, and he will take care of our basic needs. He says so much in verses 34, 31 to 34. He gives us a command. He gives us assurance. He gives us application, and he gives us an explanation. Let's look first at the command. Verse 31. Seek God's kingdom, he says. In the Sermon on the, on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus expressed it this way. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Well, what does it mean in practical terms to seek God's kingdom? Does that mean that everyone has to become a missionary to some foreign country and live in the jungle? Or go become a full-time Christian worker somewhere? Obviously, it doesn't mean that. See, God's kingdom is where he rules. To seek God's kingdom means to put things first as Lord of everything in our lives, and to aim each day at furthering His rule over us and over others. The day is soon coming when Jesus will return, and He will rule the nations with, a, the Bible says, a rod of iron. But see, until then, until that happens, we are to live under His Lordship in every area of our lives. And we are to seek to further his rightful rule over others as they come to faith in Christ and then live under his lordship as well. See, God is not just to be a, a slice of life on Sundays or whenever we find him useful, wherever we find him fitting into our agenda. Rather, he is to be the center of all we think, all we say, and do every day. He is to be the Lord over every facet of our lives. We live as his servants, as stewards of what he's entrusted to us, seeking to glorify him. See, that's what it means to seek his kingdom. But secondly, he gives us assurance here in verses 31 and 32. The Father will provide for all our needs if we focus on his kingdom. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Well, what's those things these things refer to? It refers to what the nations seek. What do they seek? Namely, food, clothing, material needs. Now, the thought of not seeking after these things, but rather Seeking God's kingdom causes some anxiety, even among God's people. Thus Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That term, little flock, it sounds like a pretty vulnerable group in the midst of a, a dog-eat-dog world. But Jesus wants us to feel assured that none other than 
A loving Heavenly Father is watching over us if we are committed to seek His kingdom. Now, the full measure of God's kingdom and His blessings awaits us in the future, but even in the difficulties of this evil world, we can trust that the Father's abundant mercies are on us because of His gracious choice of us. Well, thirdly, look at the application here with me in verse 33. The application is this, give generously and you will have lasting treasure in heaven. He says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, Jesus isn't telling us here that you have to sell everything, give away the proceeds. He's not telling us that. The Bible implies the right to private ownership of property. It implies it in the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Well, you couldn't steal something from someone if it wasn't theirs. So we have a right to private property. Remember, Peter told Ananias that his property was his to do with as he saw fit in Acts chapter 5. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? See, Ananias' sin was not in holding back some of the proceeds, that wasn't the sin. The sin was lying about giving all when he had not done so. See, if Jesus meant that his followers must sell all of their possessions, surely he would have rebuked those who owned homes, lands, etc., but he didn't do it. Rather, Jesus here is saying, have a loose grip on these things of the world. They're not going to last anyway. Instead, be generous in giving to those in need, and God will reward you with lasting riches in heaven. See, the contrast is between storing up temporary treasure for yourself on earth, in verse 21, instead of laying up treasures in heaven that will last for all eternity. It's very easy. If you struggle with greed, if you struggle with living for this life only, Give away your stuff. Just give it away. Because giving generously frees us from greed, and it puts our focus rightfully on God and on eternity. Well, the last point here in our message is verse 34. Really, he gives an explanation of the whole point. He says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Usually we get this backwards. We think that we will put our treasure where our hearts are. But Jesus says that if we put our treasure somewhere, our hearts will be there also. Store your treasure in heaven by giving generously to the Lord's kingdom, and your heart will be drawn to heaven. You know, as we are not meeting for potentially several weeks uh, we had to come up with a way for you to be able to give of your tithes and offerings. And so, you know, you can give online. Uh, you can give through the app. You can mail your check in. Um, because, you know, just because we're not having church, it doesn't mean that we don't have expenses here. And so we need to make sure that we have that platform in place for you to be able to continue to support God's work here and around the world through the missionaries we support with well, a conclusion here, as we continue to have to deal with 
this virus and the national and, and world crisis that it's causing, I want us to remember a couple things. First of all, remember this world is not our home. <laughs> We're just passing through. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. All this around us is temporary. I mean, it's enjoyable to have things and enjoy them, but it's temporary. One day you'll leave it behind. Secondly, even though we can't gather together in the same place for worship as we do physically, together as the body of Christ, that does not change our commitment to worship God. That's why we arrange for you to have this message in your home. That's why I sent out a letter with links to some worship songs on YouTube that you could listen to uh, with your family and worship even in the, in the intimate setting of your home. You know, we don't have to. Uh, the church isn't about a building. The church is about the Spirit of Christ dwelling in individuals and together, spiritually coming together to worship Him in spirit and truth. And then secondly, I would say count your blessings. Take this time to count your blessings. Count the blessings of being able to stay at home with your kids. What a wonderful thing it is. Now, some of you are kind of snickering, going, yeah, right, but it's true. Um, you know, we live in such a fast-paced society. It's almost, you know, it's like, wow, things were just getting out of hand. Everybody's in a rat race, running here and there and everything, and God just says, you know, I'm just going to stop everything for a couple weeks. Just put a hold on everything and let you, let my creation focus on really what's important. Count your blessings. Um, I've heard from several people that have told me, since we haven't been able to meet in our Bible studies during the week or even on Sunday services, how much they miss that. And I thought, good, you should miss it. There should be an ever-growing yearning in your heart to want to desire to come back together as the body of Christ. And I think sometimes we don't know what we have until we lose it. And we've probably taken for granted the ability to come out on a Sunday and gather together with other believers and worship God freely here in this country. Well, it took a virus to stop that. This is probably unprecedented. But you know what? God has a purpose in it. God has a plan. Maybe part of His purpose is, is to help the church realize what they had. <laughs> before all this went down. So that when things go back to normal, they don't take for granted the ability to come and worship together as the body of Christ. Count your blessings of being able to spend time with your wife, your husband, your children, working out of the home, not having to deal with a commute every day. Whatever it might be, write it down. Count your blessings. And then, fourthly, stay vigilant in prayer. Stay vigilant in prayer. Pray for the following things. Pray for an answer to this virus. Pray that somehow God would give some man or some woman in the scientific or medical field the answer. That they would be able to create a vaccine in record time or come up with an antidote to this virus to prolong life. Pray for our president and vice president and their teams. Pray that God would protect them. That God would give them wisdom as they balance 
all the problems that they're facing. Pray for our church. Pray for our community. Pray for our first responders. Pray for our local police. Pray for our local fire departments. Pray for those in the medical field who are on the really the front lines of this issue, dealing with people who have the virus. And pray for our missionaries and their families. How hard it must be to be separated from maybe the rest of your family in a foreign country somewhere where all the world is turning upheaval everywhere. You know, God has a purpose. He has a plan for this. This didn't catch him by surprise. It's caught a lot of people by surprise, but it didn't catch him by surprise. And I pray that as a church that we would continue to seek his will, his desire for us first personally, for our families, for our church, for our community. And then we would look for ways to serve those around us, to look for ways to show people the love, the compassion of Christ. Well, I pray this has been a blessing to your hearts. I pray that it's been an encouragement. It's hard not being together as the body of Christ. I think this is the first time in 20 plus years of ministry that I haven't fellowshiped here in Grace Bible Church while I was having been in town, of course. I don't think I've ever missed a Sunday other than when I was traveling or been out of, out of town. Um, and you know what? We do miss it. We, we love our church. We love all the po- folks here. We pray that you will be praying for each other. Pray for the older people that you would um, just encourage them. Reach out to them. See if they have any needs. And, and God will get us through this. I make no mistake about it. I think we will come out of this whole thing as a church, as a nation, much stronger, much more unified. And maybe that's what God had in mind all along. And so let's uh, continue to stay faithful, continue to encourage, continue to reach out with the gospel. And uh, let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you provide encouragement for our hearts. And sometimes our hearts grow anxious, they grow worrisome. But Lord, you provide the antidote. You provide what we need. You provide the stability so they're not, we're not being tossed to and fro, cast around like a boat on high waves. But Lord, we can be firmly grounded in our faith because our faith relies and is in you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray for each member of our church. We pray that you would continue to watch over them, guard them against any kind of illness. Help us to use common sense to do what people in the medical field are asking us to do, wash our hands and practice the social distancing for a while. But, Lord, this will pass, and we we long for that that time when we can gather once again as the body of Christ. Uh, Help us to yearn for each other's company. Uh, Help us to remind ourselves that um, we are called to be the church of Christ during this time and to have a positive effect 
on the community in which we live. And so, Lord, we just thank you. If there's anyone listening to this message who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out just in in a heart of desperation, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. As I look around at the world, it seems like things are just, the wheels are coming off the cart quickly. But, Lord, you're in control of this. And so, Lord, I pray that you would direct their hearts, not to worldly answers, but to your word. I pray that you would convict them of their sin, that they would draw close to Christ, that they would ask him for forgiveness of their sin, that you would transform their heart, making them a new person in Christ. That's just a prayer away. When you, when you pray from a sincere heart, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a, that's a cry, for a desperate cry for salvation, knowing that it can only come from you. Father, we thank you and we pray. All these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.